Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Justin Quirk. Almost none of us understand how the modern economy actually works. Much of the country is shaped and organised around a complicated series of financial instruments, theories and long-term gambles which bear little relation to what we understand about finance in our own lives. And it's only when things like Quasi Quateng's disastrous mini-budget happen that these elements come to the fore and we realise just how powerful they are. So just what is currently happening to the British economy? What is quantitative tightening? And how should we understand the relationship between the government and the Bank of England? Joining me in the bunker today to answer these questions is Richard Murphy, Professor of Accounting Practice, Sheffield University, author of the book Money for Nothing and King of the Twitter Macroeconomic Megathread. Welcome to the bunker, Richard. Hello. Richard, you've been writing at length this week about quantitative tightening. Um, For a lay audience, by which I mean essentially me, uh, can you explain what this is? Quantitative tightening, there are so many T's in there, it is ridiculous, (laughs) is the opposite of quantitative easing, which absolutely adds nothing to your probable understanding. So let me explain what quantitative easing is, because you can't understand the reverse, which is tightening unless I do. Okay, QE, as it is called, quantitative easing, is the process by which the government spends money into the economy. Now, remember, the government can always spend money into the economy at will, because unlike you, me and everybody who's listening, they've got their own bank. It's called the Bank of England. And not only is it their own bank, but it has that extra special quality, which, again, no other bank has. It actually creates our money. If in doubt, look at that 10 quid note in your pocket. And unless you're in Scotland, which is slightly different, you will notice, oh, and Northern Ireland, you will notice that it says Bank of England, and I promise to pay the bearer on demand. By the way, the notes in Scotland and Northern Ireland are identical in reality. They have to deposit an equivalent sum of money to be able to issue a Scottish banknote. But the point is, the Bank of England creates the money. So the government can always spend whenever it wishes without actually having any money in the bank, because the Bank of England makes some more money for it. Once it's spent that money, it then has um, to face up to the reality that if it kept on doing this, it would create inflation pretty quickly. So it has to do something about that. And that is tax. So tax is used to cancel all this money that the government otherwise splurges day in, day out into the economy by creating new money at the Bank of England. And I promise you, this is literally true and has worked this way since 1866. When the Audit and Exchequer Department Act of that year was passed, it's still in operation. And the tax cancels the money that was created by the spending. As a result, everything you think about spend and tax is wrong because actually we tax and we then spend. And think about it. If you have to pay your taxes in sterling, how could you get hold of the sterling unless the government had spent it into existence first of all? So the chicken and egg question is easy to answer in this case. The spend has to come before the tax. Now, what's left over at the end of the day may be what's called a fiscal imbalance. So the government can spend more into the economy than it taxes back. It can spend less into the economy than it taxes back. There is no requirement. And frankly, it's fluke chance if government spending equals taxation because they really can't plan the economy with that degree of precision. So there's an imbalance. Now, historically, by which I mean up until August 1971, which I'll explain in a moment, that imbalance had 
to be filled by government borrowing. That was because until August 1971, although we weren't on the gold standard, the value of the pound was linked at a fixed rate to the dollar and the dollar was on the gold standard. And therefore, in theory, at least, and to some extent in practice, there was a limited supply of money in the world. So if the government wanted to create more money than it had actually had available to it to spend, it had to borrow it back from the rest of the economy. Since August 1971, that has not applied. 98% of economists and 99% of financial journalists and 100% of politicians, no, not quite 100% of politicians, but almost 100% of politicians haven't noticed this fact. But since August 1971, we've had what's called fiat money, by which I don't refer to some rather cute little car. I do instead refer to the fact that this fiat means this is legal tender because the government simply says so. Fiat means it has been declared so by law. There's nothing that backs up our pounds except the power to tax. There is no silver. There's no gold. And if, by the way, anyone listening to this thinks there's money in the bank, you are seriously mistaken. The only thing in the bank is a computer. And the only thing that proves you have money is the balance on your bank statement. That's all that the physical existence of money in the bank means. Now, although the government hasn't needed to borrow since 1971, by convention it has. And the reason why by convention it has is because people want to save with it. It's the borrower of last resort, because if you save with the government, the government borrows your cash. And very large banks and very large companies want somewhere safe to put their money. And so they basically use government bonds for that purpose. Plus pension funds in particular and life insurance companies are desperately keen to hold government bonds because they underpin pension payments for all sorts of very good technical reasons. So we have bonds. Now, the reality was that in two particular periods, 2008 and 2020, there wasn't a big enough market for the government bonds that the government wanted to sell. And this was presumably because of the financial crash the first time and COVID the second time? Indeed. The financial crash of 2008 meant there weren't enough customers to buy, well, in the first year of that crash, £150 billion worth of bonds. And when we came to 2020-21, over £200 billion in the first year then. So instead of selling them to the market, the, well, the government sold them to the market in theory and then bought them straight back again. So what it did was the government spent, then it claimed the money back by issuing bonds, and then it created more money to buy the bonds it had just sold back. Why did it do that? To pretend that it hadn't borrowed directly from the Bank of England. That's all. It was a pretense, a sham, a facade. The Bank of England don't like me saying that, but that's what actually happened. As a result, the Bank of England ended up owning £900 billion worth of government bonds. Now, given that there's only £2.2 billion or so government bonds in issue, that's over 30% of all bonds out there. And so they owned a massive slug of the government's actual own debt. Well, of course, you can't owe yourself money. That's technically impossible. So in theory, those bonds were all cancelled. Um, in practice, theoretically, they remained in place. What would have been the incentive for both parties there to obfuscate that transaction? Well, in 2008, the obfuscation was actually to satisfy European law. Um, European uh, banking convention was that the government was not allowed to lend 
the government's own bank was not allowed to lend right. to its own government. So everybody played this silly game of pretending they were doing quantitative easing instead of lending directly. So it was government playing silly games, let's be blunt. I mean, the finance industry is full of the, and we all know, has the enormous capacity to play silly games like tax haven charades. This is another charade to pretend that something was happening that wasn't really in the way it looked. In 2020, we were out of the EU, but the convention was set, so we did it again. In 2020, you know, it was week for week. The bonds issued were almost exactly the same as the bonds bought back to, you know, within a few pounds virtually. It was literally the government being funded by the Bank of England. Now, that 900 billion, according to the Bank of England, is now inflationary. That's nonsense. Even their latest report on November the 3rd, on the monetary policy uh, position in the UK says that inflation has been caused by Putin's war and COVID supply chain issues, with Putin's war dominating through energy price increases and food price increases. Absolutely not true that it's been created by COVID. Mervyn King likes to say that. Oh, sorry, by QE. Mervyn King likes to say it's been created by QE. But let's be blunt, as an ex-governor of the Bank of England who had an appalling track record in 2008, He's also got this one wrong. He's the man who failed to notice there was going to be a crash and had to answer the question to the Queen, why didn't you notice? Because he didn't, that's why. Now, the central bankers want to pretend that they are in charge. Why are we doing QT? Because central bankers' QT is quantitative tightening, which simply is the process of selling the bonds that were bought under QE back to the marketplace. It reduces the size of the government balance sheet. It reclaims money from the economy. It reduces the cash available to commercial banks. It forces up interest rates by basically meaning the government as a whole is demanding more money from the markets than it would otherwise do by borrowing for routine day-to-day spending. The Bank of England has chosen to do it. Why have they chosen to do it? A, because they want to force up interest rates to reinforce their policy of increasing rates, 0.75% on 3rd November. And B, because they actually want to prove they can do it. Because central bankers are incredibly worried at the moment that they have no real role in life. And so they're trying to prove that they can actually do more than interest rate changes, but can also influence monetary policy by selling bonds now. It is a ludicrous policy to do at this moment. Firstly, it prevents the government selling bonds, and the government claims it has a black hole of £50 billion. The Bank of England is planning to sell £80 billion of pounds under quantitative tightening, but if actually it let the government sell £50 billion of new bonds instead of selling old bonds that the Bank of England owns, that £50 billion could be made available to close this supposed financial black hole. There isn't a black hole, by the way. There's just a difference in the rules that the government had set for itself. But the point is, there would be no problem with the government selling bonds if the Bank of England wasn't. So the Bank of England is actually trying to enforce austerity at the same time as it is trying to also impose interest rate rises, which will reinforce austerity. And secondly, the only reason the Bank of England wants to do this is for a bit of financial engineering purposes to make it look good which is really a game that we don't need to play right now when we're in a real economic crisis rather than a make-believe one that the Bank of England has about its balance sheet. All in all, QT, quantitative tightening, is the last thing we need to do at the moment and implies that we have a Bank of England that really doesn't care about ordinary people in this country, in my opinion. 
take a step back. I wanted to ask you about the wider picture of how our economies organise more generally. I mean, my assumption, and I think most people's, is that the Bank of England is independent from the government and that the bank are ostensibly the adults in the room compared to our current crop of politicians. Is that an accurate reading of things? No, it isn't an accurate reading to suggest the Bank of England is independent. If you read the Bank of England Act 1998, I don't suspect many people have, but I am one of those who has done so. You will see section 19 says that whatever the Bank of England does can be overruled by the Chancellor of the Exchequer if they think it appropriate in the case of there being a financial urgency to do so. Has that happened or is is that a convention like the king or queen could knock back legislation from parliament, but in reality they won't? It hasn't happened formally. Informally, what that means is that the governor knows that whatever they do must be approved by the chancellor in advance, so they do what the chancellor wants. Right. But the reality is that the governor is not independent of the chancellor. They talk once and maybe more a week, and the governor listens very carefully to what the treasury tells them and as a consequence does exactly what they're told. And by the way, they have little choice because all their actions on quantitative easing easing and tightening have to be approved by the Treasury anyway. And has that always been the case, that idea that the the bank is essentially being led by the nose, by the politicians? Is that more of an issue at the moment or has that long been the case? Does the power balance sort of fluctuate over time there? Well, I think the bank at the moment thinks that there are well, it is a shortage of um, grown-ups in um, Westminster. So then sitting in the city of London, and remember there are two historic centres of power at play here. The cities of Westminster and city of London have long been at um, in conflict with each other. I do think that the Bank of England has thought it is a moment for it to flex its muscles and try and prove it really is independent by challenging, in a sense, what um, the government is doing. I think it brought down quasi Kwarteng pretty effectively by basically announcing QT the day before his mini budget, therefore spooking the markets. I think it's trying to flex its muscles now with Rishi Sunak. Um, I think that shows that we have an incredibly immature, I use the word in the sense of not very grown up person in charge of the uh, Bank of England at present. The comparison between Andrew Bailey and Mark Carney is quite extraordinary. I didn't like everything Mark Carney did, but Andrew Bailey in comparison is a pygmy. Can you elaborate on that slightly? What's the, because presumably the the figurehead at the top of the organisation shapes its behaviour and mentality, you know, in any industry. What are the key differences there between those two heads, do you think? Well, Mark Carney had been out in the real world. Well, to some extent, he'd been around the world of finance. He certainly understood economics. He certainly understood um, the way banking worked. And he certainly understood the macro economy and what the requirements with regard to interest rate setting were. In comparison, Andrew Bailey is in fact a historian. He doesn't have degrees in economics. He is not trained in the subject as a result. And he spent almost all his career at the Bank of England, the only person he's ever worked for, um, in regulation of financial services and not actually looking at economics. He therefore is simply unqualified to do the job he's doing and walks around pretending that he is, but his bull and I use sort of this bullish attitude that he puts out, is cover, I suspect, for his own insecurity because he simply does not know what is going on in the economy or how to manage an economy or what economics is saying in this situation, I suggest. And I'm not alone. From your work that I've been reading, if I've read this correctly, I mean, it seems that the course of action that the bank is engaged in at the moment 
is making you know a prolonged period of austerity from the government more likely. Now, do you think the bank is essentially providing cover for the government to implement that, or is it essentially forcing them in that direction? I think it is doing both. I think it is providing cover in a sense for imposing austerity. But remember, Rishi Sunak does not want there to be a recession between now and 2024 because he wants to win an election Mm. and no government wins an election on the back of a recession. And yet the Bank of England is clearly forecasting two years of recession, 23 and 24. And that's before we see whatever Rishi Sunak does with regard to austerity. So again, the bank has jumped the gun two weeks ahead of what we will hear from Rishi Sunak on the 17th of November. Is he providing cover? Well, actually, the Bank of England might be providing the opportunity to be blamed, but I don't think they would see it that way. No, I think they're probably working in cahoots. I think they actually do think the economy needs to be crashed at the moment, crushed, so that demand is eliminated, so that inflation is reduced. This is absurd, by the way, because inflation will simply automatically go away by the summer of 2023. The maths requires it. But what would be the benefit for the bank if if they do engender that kind of crash? Because in a quite a simplistic term, wouldn't they rather have a essentially prosperous country where everyone's going around spending disposable income? I mean, not to inflationary levels, but what's the, in simple terms, what's the benefit from them of a a crash situation? Well, let's just look at the Bank of England, an organisation dominated by a very particular and rather narrow mindset of economists, all London-based, most of them Oxford or Cambridge graduates, not all, but most, very pro-market, very interested in monetary policy as opposed to having any concern about wages or the obligation for real people to actually be able to make their ends meet. Incredibly well paid in comparison to most in the economy with the most extraordinary pension scheme where 50% of their salaries is basically paid into the pension fund each year. So people who are completely immune from financial pressure, what game are they playing? Advancement of their own egos. And that's the game they're playing here. They actually want to prove that they're important and they can do things rather like I think the US Fed is, because I think it's also out of control with its interest rate policy. And I think there's plenty of concern in the US about that as well. These are central bankers trying to prove they have a role in life when in practice they're abusing the rest of us by doing so, in my opinion. And what is the uh, the game for them? Well, feeling as though they're important. I'm afraid it is as small minded, I believe, as that. And just to take a step back, I mean, you obviously work in education, you're a public communicator about economics. As a public in this country, what are the key things that you think we fundamentally fail to understand about how our economy works and is organised? Oh, look, the fundamental thing we don't understand is money. Um, I've already explained it. I mean, explained how money comes into existence. Literally, the Bank of England creates it for the government and it's spent by the government into the economy. People just don't get that. They think there's something real. They think there's gold behind it or whatever else. They don't understand that tax doesn't pay for government spending. They think it does. It doesn't. Tax is a mechanism to control inflation and reduce inequality and address market failures. Um, They think that the government is like a household so that it must balance its books and that if it doesn't, it will somehow go bust. They forget that no household has its own bank and the government does and the government makes all the money. So it's this fundamental thinking that the government is like a household. 
absolutely and completely identifiable as a policy and an idea created by Margaret Thatcher with her idea of handbag economics and that the world was run like her father's corner shop in Grantham, which is just so wrong. And yet we hear it time and time again. The government's got a black hole. It can't fund itself. It's going to run out of money, whatever. It's impossible for those things to happen. The government can never run out of money. And the idea that the government can never repay its debts is so absurd because the government can always repay its debts because it makes the money to pay. So these ideas that the government is somehow constrained in a way it isn't is what are deeply frustrating to me because it means that people believe that things aren't possible. We can't have the public services we need. We can't pay the pensions that are required and so on. I'm not saying there aren't other consequences of doing those things because they have real world consequences in allocating resources in a way that may be different if they aren't done. But the government can do them and is not constrained by an inability to raise money if it doesn't want to. But eventually it will have to raise tax to control an inflationary effect. But people get that whole circle of money and financing and so on wrong. I think the other thing that deeply frustrates me is that people clearly want the government to increase its level of activity and just don't understand how that could be achieved. Well, the answer is by partly by growth. I'm afraid that sounds a bit like Liz Trust, but obviously I would actually have a real plan for growth. And secondly, it would actually be by, to some extent, bringing um, reallocating resources in society. I have to say, I think there's a great deal that goes on in the private sector in the economy isn't necessarily of great value. And that I would prefer that the NHS was better resourced and that education had more resources allocated, for example, because I think that we would actually see vastly more growth because of increases in productivity from both. So there are big questions the public don't understand how to ask and answer and which politicians aren't helping them with. your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell, and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. And just to end on a slightly more optimistic bit of wish casting, if the call came in tomorrow, they said, uh, Richard Murphy, we're going to announce you as the new head of the Bank of England. What would be your first um, sort of immediate, what's the low hanging fruit that you would go for, which you think would make a real difference to how the economy's run? I would immediately offer the government a um, QE facility saying that the energy crisis um, requires QE to cover it just as COVID did, just as 2008 financial crisis did, and offer 100 billion of QE funding capacity to the government to allow it to get through that particular crisis and to invest in the rest of the public services. I don't believe there would be any inflationary consequence, but clearly there would be a benefit because there would be no threat to people's employment. 
And secondly, I'd be saying, look, let's cut interest rates. Um, I would not go back to 0.1%. I think that was probably too low. But 2.25% was too high. And 3%, which we're at now, is definitely too high. I'd be probably targeting to go back to 1%, maximum 1.5%, and saying, look, we need to do this to make sure that people can afford to live in their houses. And that, surely, is the most important thing that a central banker can do, because the central banker doesn't want homelessness on their consciences. Richard Murphy, thank you for joining me on The Bunker. Thank you very much. Listeners, remember that to guide you through these times of great tribulation, The Bunker is now available seven days a week with our companion panel show, Oh God, What Now?, going out on Tuesdays and Fridays. To support the shows directly, find us on Patreon, where as little as £3 a month gets you the shows early and without ads, along with a host of other perks. You'll also be helping us produce our new series like Doomsday Watch and Origin Story. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.